This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the start of the story of Morgan Le Fay, Arthur's half-sister. You'll learn that a nunnery is, I guess, a great place to learn necromancy, and that if a middle-aged man offers to teach you magic lessons in the woods, well, I don't even think I need to finish that sentence. It sounds sketchy enough already. The creature this week is a little red monster from Detroit, Michigan, who will fill your life with doom, destruction, and really bad breath. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 68A, Get Thee to a Nunnery. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today, we're back in the Arthurian legends, but we're not really continuing from last week. So if this is your first time hearing the podcast, feel free to jump in here. Before we begin, I'm going to start this episode saying that I took some liberties with the Morgan Le Fay story. The most coherent version is that of Sir Thomas Mallory, but one of his main sources was the 13th century French Vulgate, which adds much more nuance and includes the whole episode we're going to talk about today. Basically, as with nearly every story in this podcast, there's no one official version. The Arthurian legends are basically just pseudo-historical supernatural fanfiction. I merged all the versions I could to make the Morgan in the story today, and I'll break it down at the end of the episode. Okay, on with the show. Morgan didn't like this man. She was young, but she was old enough to understand. Morgan's father was dead, and the man who had killed him was now marrying her mother. And everyone knew it, because that man was the king. His name was Uther Pendragon. Now, if you remember way back, Uther, Arthur's future father, really liked Lady Agraine, so he sparked a war with her husband, the Duke of Cornwall. Long story short, the Duke of Cornwall was defeated, and Uther, remember he was a horrible person, raped and then married Agraine. Now, there was the issue of her children. Uther wasn't really dad material, but even aside from that, the late Duke of Cornwall's three daughters reminded him daily of their deceased father. I don't think Uther had any crisis of conscience or anything, but you would have to be villainously cold-hearted to enjoy having the daughters of the man you killed and whose wife you just married just hanging around the castle. Two were of marrying age, so that was easy. Morgoth was married off to King Lot of Orkney. Even this early on, Uther could see that that guy was trouble and that they would need to shore up that alliance. Elaine was married off to King Nentris of Garlow and Brittany. All right, that's two down, Uther thought. Just one to go. Uther finally grew fed up with the youngest daughter, Morgan. I mean, yeah, Uther killed her father and married her mother and kicked her two sisters out of the house and was trying to find a way to get rid of her too. But could she just find a way to love the evil old king who hated her? Was that too much to ask? It was. I like to picture the 13-year-old Morgan messing with Uther around the castle, like putting his hand in warm water while he slept and then just running away. But finally, Uther had had enough. He shipped young Morgan off to a nunnery a few days before he learned that Lady Agraine, his wife, was pregnant with Arthur. This next part of Morgan's life is incredibly fascinating and contradictory, but there's no explanation provided. Morgan was shipped off to a nunnery where she picked up the art of necromancy. 
I'm going to plead ignorance as to what goes on at nunneries, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably not a lot of necromancy. I looked into this, and there's some speculation that Morgan took advantage of her time at the nunnery to become highly educated. Some speculate that her vast and varied knowledge gave people the impression that she had some sort of arcane or mystical knowledge. I don't know how much stock to put in that interpretation, but it makes a little more sense than a teenager being able to major in necromancy at the local nunnery. Also, we're told that, according to the French Vulgate version of the story, Morgan was the most beautiful of girls, until she started to learn sorcery. At that point, her beauty and youth evaporated instantly, and from then on, no one considered her beautiful unless they were under a spell. So there's that. I guess that helps to explain her withered look from last week, though I don't think that particular detail is widely accepted. Also, let's not play spot the subtext, with a woman gaining education and then becoming unattractive. Yeah, these stories. She only lived in the nunnery for a couple of years, though. She began hearing rumors, whispered among the nuns, that King Uther was ill. Then, one night, it was confirmed. Morgan woke suddenly, as several knights burst into her room. The king was dead, and Morgan couldn't stay here any longer. They would come for her. She had to be taken somewhere safe. We talked about it a long time ago, but after Uther died, Britain descended into over a decade of bloody civil war, with rival claimants to Uther's throne only pausing from killing each other to be killed by Saxons, who decided to treat themselves to an invasion. I don't know why Morgan, barely of marriageable age, was forced to marry King Urien of Gore. I like to think that her mother, Lady Agrain, arranged the marriage with a powerful king who vowed not to make a claim on Uther's throne as a way to keep Morgan safe. Arthur was in hiding, secretly under the care of one of Uther's former knights. So, I don't know, maybe the unmarried Morgan could be seen as an opportunity for someone wanting to be king, or as a threat, by someone like Lot, who was married to Morgan's older sister. And yeah, knowing of what we know about Lot and his hobby of casually betraying relatives for his own selfish ends, I don't think he'd think twice about sending some strong knights with sharp knives to a nunnery. Regardless, Morgan may have been safe, but she was miserable. The marriage was not a happy one. As far as I can tell, she and Urien just kind of hated each other, though they did end up having two sons in the early years of their marriage. Long-time listeners have actually already met one of her sons, Yvaine, the knight with the lion, way back in episodes 1A through 1C. He was the son of Morgan le Fay and King Urien. Morgan lived in safety during the bloody years of war, even though she was almost completely miserable during this time. It wasn't until after Arthur had drawn the sword from the stone and become king that it was safe for Morgan to travel out in the open. At last, she went to visit her mother, the grain. Together, the pair went to Arthur to confirm his parentage and tell him the whole story. Morgan, a few years older than her brother, was entranced by London and later Camelot. It was the center of the world for her, and she didn't want to go back to her kingdom or her husband. It was helpful, too, that Arthur needed friends. With the kings underneath him betraying him almost constantly, Merlin doing who knows what half the time, and him accidentally sleeping with one of their sisters, Morgan was really the only family Arthur had left. Their other sister, Elaine, doesn't really do much in the legends besides exist. 
Morgan sat in on all young Arthur's important meetings, including the ones with the court wizard and sentient sexual harassment lawsuit Merlin, Arthur's strange, middle-aged best buddy. Morgan had heard rumors of the famous wizard, but it took seeing him prophesy in person for her to sit figuratively spellbound. She could see that he was the perfection of the sorcery that she had learned in the nunnery. She was but a learner. He was the master. He had to teach her. Now, for all of his positive qualities, Merlin had some bad ideas, like sinking a ship full of babies and trying to seduce a 12-year-old. In addition to his horrible ideas, he was also unsettlingly sketchy. Morgan stopped him in the hall, and she said she had to learn from him. He had to teach her magic. Merlin replied that he didn't really take students at... Then he turned to look at her. Oh, Arthur's beautiful sister. You know what? I think we can work something out. Merlin asked her to meet him in his classroom. Called the woods. Nobody would be able to interrupt them or, you know, hear them. Sound good? Morgan may have still been young, but she wasn't ignorant. She knew exactly what Merlin was thinking. But she could deal with this creepy old guy. If it meant access to unimaginable power... She had been tossed on the waves like flotsam her whole life. Now, sister of the king, she would take her life back. She went to Merlin's classroom of the woods, and over the course of several lessons, learned everything he could teach her. She had been gently redirecting and rebuffing his advances, making him think there was still hope, while wringing as much knowledge as she could out of the man. Finally, the day came when she reached the edge of Merlin's knowledge, and Merlin reached for Morgan. But he never touched her. She stopped his hand in midair. Merlin tried to move, but found he was frozen. Casually, Morgan gathered all of her things while keeping the wizard locked in place, and then she turned to him. She began walking toward him, and as she moved, he moved backwards too. He remained frozen, feet dragging against the ground. She pushed him backwards, and his arms scraped against the tree branches, his legs against rocks. Finally, he backed into a tree. Merlin's head pounded as Morgan continued walking steadily toward him. It felt like he was being crushed. She stopped directly in front of him, eyes locked on his. From her bag, she casually selected a small knife. Inspecting the point, she lined up the blade at Merlin's throat, right at his jugular. She pressed in ever so slightly, drawing a scant amount of blood. She looked this sleazy old man right in the eye and just said, no. Then, that was it. She pulled the knife away from his throat, put it back in her bag, and walked back toward the path to Camelot. Before turning the corner, she hollered, Oh, and thanks for the lessons. Merlin froze, ten minutes later, falling hard to the mossy ground. Maybe something changed in Morgan after she learned from Merlin, or maybe the power brought out a ruthlessness and ambition that was always there. I mean, her father was dead, and the man who had essentially killed him had also married her mother and shipped her away. She had been ripped from a place of comfort and relative safety, to marry a man she never loved. 
it's easy to see how those circumstances could create someone who craved safety and control over her life, and how she would probably have a difficult time trusting others in the future. Well, combine those feelings with a big change in Arthur's life. The new king got married. And now, there was a lot more competing for Arthur's time and attention. With the addition of his wife, Guinevere, Morgan saw her own position begin to diminish. Arthur didn't need his sister as a confidant. He had a wife now, and was slowly learning which of his knights and kings he could trust. But Morgan wasn't out, not by any means. Arthur still loved his half-sister, though not in the really gross way he had loved his other half-sister, and he entrusted to her his greatest treasure, the sword, Excalibur. The legendary sword given to Arthur by a lady of the lake also had a scabbard that was kind of even better than the sword. It protected the wearer from loss of blood, from injuries. And I don't know if you just didn't bleed or if you did and it didn't matter, but regardless, the scabbard was actually way more important than the sword. So much so that Merlin warned Arthur constantly not to lose the scabbard. He should keep it or give it to someone he trusted completely, someone who would be by his side no matter what. Arthur looked around and he saw Morgan. Who could be more trustworthy than family? Well, basically anybody. Morgan had power over the elements from her time with Merlin and learning necromancy in a nunnery, which, yeah, no amount of saying that will make it feel logical or normal. She also had political power, and now the scabbard was offering something else. Power over death itself. For a woman whose youth had been spent running from assassins, the scabbard was kind of the ultimate safety. Or, if you want to believe some medieval interpretations, she was an evil witch, and stealing the king's magic sword was what the evil witch does. A lot of times, she's just portrayed as being evil for the sake of being evil. I'm going to go with a far more nuanced version of Morgan Le Fay. To me, she seems like a woman who's been hurt, and her reactions are only a product of her environment. It's funny that, despite the quote-unquote knight in shining armor trope, and the portrayal of Camelot as this upright kingdom in contrast to the surrounding heathens, the characters are all profoundly broken as humanity seeps into the legends. They seem like the most nuanced and psychologically real characters of any of the stories I've told. It was here, in Camelot, that Morgan first saw him. His name was Guillemar, Guinevere's cousin. He was a young and handsome knight, when Morgan's husband was neither. Since Morgan was one of Guinevere's ladies-in-waiting, she and Guillemar ran in the same circles. We don't know how the affair started, but soon both Morgan and Guillemar were nowhere to be found. They were madly in love with each other. And for the first time in a long while, Morgan was happy. We'll check back in with Morgan and Guillemar and their love story right after this. All right, now back to the show. Morgan and Guillemar were madly in love with each other. But just like when she was a young girl, or at the nunnery, or at Camelot before Guinevere, she began to worry that this happiness would be snatched away. Life as a knight was dangerous. Guillemar was excited about serving his cousin-in-law, if that's actually a thing, and becoming a famous knight, maybe even joining the round table. Morgan knew that she had to find a way to protect him. Then she realized that she already had it. The scabbard. Guillemar did not need much convincing. He was honorable and all, 
But if the woman he loved was just going to hand him the cheat codes to not bleeding to death in the wilderness, after fighting one of the hundreds of knights just hanging out waiting to fight people, well, Guillemar was not going to turn that down. Morgan already had a shockingly simple plan. Make a fake scabbard. If and when Arthur learned it was the fake one, it would be too late. Meanwhile, Guillemar would travel around the countryside, gaining renown as an unkillable knight. And when Arthur inevitably died, Morgan would use her relation to him and her magic to secure the throne for herself. It took months to find a workman in Camelot who would be able to make the perfect replica of the scabbard and weeks of painstaking detail work with the king's most valued object to finish it. There was one problem though. While Morgan visited the workman in disguise, there was no disguising the scabbard. It was literally the workman's job to know that this wasn't any ordinary scabbard. And he began asking questions about it. He even started studying Morgan's face, though it was disguised and in shadows. Morgan had been watching him for weeks since she had given him the scabbard. She knew the ways he walked to and from the market, mass, and the homes of friends. When the scabbard was done, it wasn't difficult for Morgan to reach out from a shadowy alley, pull the workman into the darkness, cut his throat, and throw his body into the river. She regretted that he had to die but when an eerie old woman comes to you, offering a simple job for way too much money, with the only stipulation being that you don't ask questions, you don't ask questions. Having disposed of the workmen, Morgan returned to the castle to show Guillemar the new scabbard. In the torchlight of the early morning, they could see that the replica was perfect. Then, they heard a knock at Morgan's door. It was Arthur, and he was letting himself in. The pair panicked. Seeing as it was the middle of the night, it would look bad if anyone saw Guillemar in a room, and that it would be exactly what it looked like. Also, she was holding two scabbards. Guillemar dove out of a window, and Morgan shoved the sword and the two scabbards under the sheet on the bed behind her. Oh, cool, you're up, Arthur said. Wait, why are you dressed like you've been killing peasants in an alley? Nah, it doesn't matter. Anyway, I need Excalibur in the scabbard. I was hunting, and as it turns out, chasing down wild boars while your knights are casually firing arrows in all directions is super dangerous. Then I remembered that I had a magic scabbard where I won't lose any blood. I mean, why don't I wear that all the time? Anyway, can I get it from you? She said, of course, and reached under the sheet, grabbing the sword and the scabbard. Oh, you just keep it under a single sheet in the middle of your room? That's very secure. Anyway, thanks get some sleep. It's almost morning. Morgan smiled and nodded, waiting for him to close the door. When he did, she ran to the window, just before Guillemar's grip on the ledge gave out. She pulled him back inside, and they both sighed. It was done. Arthur had the fake, and Guillemar had the real scabbard. Now nothing could come between them. Three weeks later, Guillemar was slumped over the back of his horse, blood dripping from his armor. His horse's mane matted with it. He barely made it to an inn before he slipped to the ground, unconscious, his armor clanging as he hit the ground. 
As he sat recovering in the three-bedroom cottage the owner generously called an inn, Guillemar could only think of one thing. Morgan had betrayed him. Earlier that day, Guillemar had run into a knight guarding a river crossing. Guillemar was good, but he was no Gawain. It didn't go well, and his opponent stabbed him in dozens of places. Guillemar survived, but only just, and had fallen from his horse, the saddle slick with his blood, to the alarm at everyone in the inn. Guillemar spent a few weeks in bed until he was able to ride back to Camelot. He sent a messenger to his cousin, Guinevere, the only person he felt like he could trust. The queen met him in a dingy inn in the farmland on the edge of Camelot. He confessed everything to her. He told her all about the scabbard, about the deception, the murder of the workman, and the plot to maybe eventually usurp Arthur's throne. He told Guinevere that Morgan was more powerful than any of them imagined, maybe even more powerful than Merlin. She knew the future, too. She probably even knew they were having this conversation. Guinevere sat thinking in the shadow of her hooded cloak and arrived at the solution, almost immediately. Arthur was going hunting early tomorrow morning. Guinevere would tell him that Guillemar would go with him. There, he would confess everything to Arthur. If it came from his mouth, Arthur probably wouldn't execute him for treason. No promises, though. Guinevere would keep an eye on Morgan until Arthur returned with the orders to arrest her. Everything was going to be okay. The next day, Arthur was happy to see his cousin-in-law, still in bandages, approaching on a horse as he was out hunting. Guillemar asked the king for a moment alone. Arthur asked if it could wait. They were just about to leave. But Guillemar pulled out a scabbard, a perfect replica of Arthur's. And he had the king's full attention. Back in Camelot, Guinevere slipped away from the guards, knights, and ladies-in-waiting. She went straight to Morgan's room, alone, and shut the door. You're his sister. You're some of the only family he has left. Why would you do it? Guinevere asked Morgan, who was sitting there writing a letter. Morgan turned quizzically with a, who, me, look, before sighing. Look on Guinevere's face, the accusation. As a wizard with an intelligence modifier off the charts, Morgan knew exactly what Guinevere was talking about. Given that Guinevere wasn't crying, the king was still in one piece. Guillemar must have talked. Ah, darn it, Morgan said. I gave Guillemar the wrong scabbard. I know, it was too good. I should have labeled them. This is going to crush him, Guinevere went on. And you and me, we were friends. You're family. <laughs> family, Morgan paused. You know... I grew up fearing for my life because I didn't know if my stepdad or any of his countless enemies were going to murder me. And when I found a home, I was forced to marry who? Urian? Ugh. Arthur came of age safely in a knight's house. And you, little precious princess, don't act like we're the same. I hurt him for survival. You'll crush him for fun. Over and over and over again. I've seen it. I've seen what you'll do. You'll tear not just Arthur, but all of Britain apart. So don't pretend to care about my brother, about family. What are you talking about? Guinevere countered, suddenly much less confident. She knew Merlin could see the future, but could Morgan? Guinevere loved her new husband, dearly. She would never do anything to hurt him. Would she? You need to leave, Guinevere said abruptly. I was thinking just that, Morgan agreed. 
freezing Guinevere in her tracks. With a sweep of her hand, Morgan slammed the queen into a stone wall. As Guinevere faded into unconsciousness, she saw Morgan's face filling her vision. I'll be around, sister. No one saw Morgan Le Fay leave the castle that morning. Though Merlin told Arthur and Guinevere not to focus on that, Merlin himself often walked around the woods as a 10-year-old boy, so Morgan could have been anyone. Using his abilities, Merlin didn't see Morgan anywhere in Camelot, though he added the disclaimer that her abilities now profoundly outmatched his own. She was an extremely dangerous enemy in a dangerous time. Merlin and everyone wished it hadn't come to this, but for nearly two years, the king and queen neither saw nor heard anything from or about Morgan. Guillemard didn't hear anything from her either, and dispatches were sent to King Urien, her husband, who was worried about her himself. Still, there were rumors of her here and there, near and far. A merchant from Byzantium allegedly had a message from her that was lost. There was talk of her living among the Druids in Ireland. Still others said that she was the shadow that stalked the dark corners of Camelot, always watching, always waiting. Nothing was confirmed though, until Gawain had the incident with the Green Knight. Arthur and Guinevere knew that Gawain hadn't escaped. He had merely earned his freedom because Morgan wanted it that way. She wanted Gawain, one of their most trusted knights, to return with her name. They had been put on notice. Morgan was back and no one was safe. But months and months passed and nothing happened. Knights left on quests, King Arthur became the de facto Western Roman Emperor in a scenario that definitely makes sense historically. And Arthur, Guinevere, and Merlin relaxed their guard a bit. Maybe the whole weird plot with the Grey Knight had been Morgan's endgame. Maybe she wasn't coming back. King Urien and one of his closest friends, Sir Accolon of Gaul, were on a visit to Arthur and Camelot to discuss Morgan. The problem? Well, they had nothing to discuss there hadn't been a sign of her after the Green Knight incident. So, the three took a hunting trip. They set up camp in the deep forest, nearly a day's ride from Camelot, and the next morning rode all day until they finally saw it. A heart. They chased it for 10 miles straight. And if running for hours on end sounds like it'd be hard on a horse, well, it was. First Acalon's, then Urien's, then Arthur's horse slowed to a wearied trot. Before collapsing from exhaustion, and dying right there in the forest. Arthur cursed that the heart had gotten away, then admitted that they had been galloping for a ridiculously long time, for hours, in no particular direction. His anger faded into a growing anxiety as he realized he didn't know where he was or how to get back to Camelot. Oh well, Arthur was the high king of these lands. What's the worst that could happen? Besides literally anything, because this is a medieval legend. Arthur's hunting companions were worried. Not only did their phones not have service, but they didn't have phones because this was the seventh century. They had no idea where they were either. They could be miles from civilization. They could be attacked by a dragon. No one would ever, wait, wait. was that a party cruise? That's it for this week. Next week, we'll see that, unless you're Gawain, stopping off from your quest to party with complete strangers on their boat, 
is an exceptionally bad idea. And we'll finish up Morgan's story in the current run of Arthurian legends. Oh, and if you want the breakdown of all the sources, I put that in the show notes and on mythpodcast.com. I want to say thanks to Giant Diary, Nessus Pass Un Review, Gans 718, Amanita 86, MJV 1911, Os My New Addiction, Mad Satin J, Megotano, Sasha Dixie, Mark Huffa Puffalo, Wadfam 2000, LL Widener, Gutta Monster, Nimuckins, Rate 25, Morbid Carcass, Chang Penguin 1234, Ablu, Big Wookie, and Thomas Travesty for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so much for listening and even more for writing a review. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to leave a review, it's great for helping people find the show. And the best place is Apple Podcasts. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Nain Rouge from Detroit, Michigan in the US. It means red dwarf in French. And it was apparently believed by the Ottawa tribe that inhabited the area but to be the son of their stone god and a protector. When the French moved in, they saw it as a monstrous harbinger of doom, those two things being pretty different. Anyway, the red dwarf is a red dwarf, and he's usually not your friend. Harbingers of doom, it seems, have very few friends. Also, the fact that he really looks the part with blazing red eyes, demon-like red skin, and rotting teeth does not help. The people of Detroit have a very specific origin story for the evil little guy. Antoine de la Motte Cadillac, a French explorer and adventurer who lived in a time when you could still put adventurer on the census form, aka the 1700s, had a dream where he saw the name Rouge and, so disturbed by this, went to a fortune teller who told him that wasn't he thinking about settling a city near the straits between two of the Great Lakes? Yeah, don't do that. He did it, and it wasn't too long after that that he saw the Nain Rouge and chased the little guy off with a stick. The next few years were rough, with the fort burning down, Cadillac being briefly imprisoned, indicted for abuse of authority, and eventually ended up back in France, where he apparently died in poverty. Also, if you're wondering, yes, he is the namesake of the Cadillac car. The story remained a bit of a local legend, and in recent years, in spring, people in Detroit have a parade to chase the Nain Rouge out of the city after winter. I posted a link to the video of it from a Detroit newspaper. People are encouraged to dress up in costumes, mainly to avoid retribution on the part of the Nain Rouge when he returns to Detroit in the winter, but also mainly because wearing costumes is fun. He's reportedly been seen multiple times in Detroit before bad things happen. He was seen before the 1805 fire. A general reported being attacked by a red dwarf in the fog just before surrendering in the War of 1812 and people have reportedly been attacked in 1872, 1884, and 1964. He was reportedly sighted before the 1967 Detroit riot, a big snowstorm in 1976, and as recently as 1996, apparently trying to break into a car. The Nain Rouge kind of seems like he's on a downward trajectory, from burning down large parts of the city and general surrendering to war to breaking into cars. Bad for him, really good for everyone else. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to Loot Crate for sponsoring today's show. This month's theme is Guardians, and features authentic products from Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Star Wars, Destiny, and Goonies. 
and one lucky subscriber will also win a Mega Crate. Be sure to subscribe by 9pm Pacific Time on the 19th to receive this month's crate. You can save $3 on your subscription when you go to lootcrate.com legends and enter code legends. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.